welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and appreciation of the lesser known Charlie. I'm Rachel Nisbet and with me my co-host Petey Imstad. How are we doing today? I'm fine thanks, I've been looking forward to this, it's been a while since we um, last recorded hasn't it? Yeah, we're a bit late this month um, on my part because I've not been feeling very well and yeah, I don't know where this year is going already so that's why we're, we've had a wee bit of a break isn't it? Yeah. But at least we're here and keen to get started again. Yeah, and we think it's a film that's a bit more mainstream than usual, so not so obscure this time. No, they just switch it up a little bit. Yes, we don't want to go like too crazy with like how obscure we go. So yeah, we, we're mindful of people wanting to like see the films prior and have to like rake through some obscure website to try and find it. So yeah, hopefully people will appreciate that we're doing that this time. But um, before we get into that, have you seen anything good this month or last two months or whatever, however long it's been? Yeah, I've been I've been watching a lot of films actually this year. Um, that's good. Of something that sticks out, I'd say I watched the um, the new UHD release of Daughters of Darkness from Blue Underground. Excellent. And that looks amazing. It's been a while since I've seen it, and I've forgotten how fantastic of a film it is. Is it quite an upgrade from the Blue Underground? Was it Blue Underground Blu-ray? I think that's what I've got. Do you know, I never got the Blu-ray. I've only seen it on DVD before, but I would imagine so. It it looks really great. It's one of those films that's so kind of visually stunning anyway, isn't it? That I can imagine in UHD, it just completely like blasts off the screen. Yeah, brilliant colours and, and that kind of thing. Also watched a really good TV horror film called Don't Go to Sleep, which was... Well, a TV rip, so it wasn't great looking, but I found I found out about it on Letterboxd, and it's a great way to find these more offbeat recommendations, mm-hmm. and I really like that as well. That was a first-time watch. Have you seen anything good? I saw, right, this is kind of a, a weird one. I think I mentioned this to you anyway, but, um, like, Murray and I have got Italian TV, yeah. which is supposed to help us with, like, you know, like, listening and hearing what the words sound like, and if anyone listens to this, they know that that's obviously not working. <laughs> <laughs> We came across this film. Usually we end up watching like sex comedies, as I mentioned before, but it was called like Joan Louis or John Louis. Um, okay. I'm not going to say the rest of the title because my pronunciation is not good. But um, you know the actor Adriana Celtano? Uh, I don't think I do, actually. You, you probably recognize his face, but he did like a lot of kind of comedies and musical things and whatever in the 70s and 80s and there seems to be like some massive vanity project that he was able to do in the mid 80s and it's basically like jesus christ superstar oh set in contemporary rome well contemporary times in 1985 and it's absolutely bonkers i started watching it obviously it's in italian so i don't understand what's going on but it had those musical numbers and you kind of follow through it and it was it was absolutely demented and it had such a big budget and they were all in like Genoa's like harbour and there was helicopters and people in kind of um, like leather daddy type outfits dancing and there was like army helicopters and then they went to like, I can't remember the name of the church, but there's like one major church in Rome and they directed like a huge neon sign on the church and they had this big like stigmata like dance routine and stuff in the middle of it. It was <laughs> honestly like if you ever get, a ch- I think it's on YouTube actually, but like in poor quality, but it was brilliant. It was like my kind of find of the of the month just because it was something I'd never heard of and it was like nothing I've seen before. So oh, yeah, that excellent. was fun. And then I saw the other day uh, the Queens of Evil Mondo Macabro release. Yeah. It was so good. I was so happy to finally see it, like, in good quality. Because I don't think the bit like was very good, was it? No. It was I mean, it's only been from, like, a, what's it, a Japanese DVD or Laserdisc or something mm-hmm. before, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. 
But yeah, that was really cool to finally have that and to see it. So really enjoyed that. And no oh, doubt, excellent. have you got your copy of it already? Or no, I'm I'm waiting for my copy. I was just thinking yeah. that because usually like everyone gets it before me, and I noticed that you hadn't met like hadn't put something up about it. So I was like, you're probably still waiting. So hopefully it comes soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. I did get my uh, Le Chakifum um, possession set though. Which is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. You need to share some pictures because I want to see like your purchase. Yeah, I'll I'll make sure to do that. It's exciting. Yeah. It's a bit of a fairy down watches for us this month. Yeah, certainly. It's been some cool announcements as well, hasn't there? Yes. So we've got the Vinegar Syndrome, Forgotten Jelly Volume Three. So that's really good because we know what films are gonna be in that, and that's what Maniac Mansion, the Spanish Shallow. Then we've got Autopsy, of course. How could you forget? So yeah, I think like for whoever's keeping track, like we've covered so well, we've had quite a few releases now of of films we've covered on Fragments. Yeah. So that's really exciting. Another one off the list. Yeah, another one. We have to like quickly get these episodes out to try and like get them out before the releases cut out. (laughs) Yeah. And then the final film is Crazy Desires of a Murderer. Yeah. And it's it's the first time on disc for that one. Yeah. Which is really exciting. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's a really good selection of films. It's kind of an, I suppose it's like the case with every release we've had so far. It's an interesting like decision to put those three films together. Yeah, I think this is probably my favourite set in terms of which titles are included. Yeah, I think they've got increasingly better, haven't they? Yeah. Don't know if I'll be saying that with Volume 4. I think that'll be a bit of a different direction. <laughs> yeah, we shall have to wait and see. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see for that. No, but like it's good because they're kind of covering different bases, aren't they? It's like we've got yeah. quite like nice selection of films, a bit of Spanish Chalet and Italian Chalet and maybe some other decades and things like that. So yeah. yeah. What else have we got other than that? What have you got on your list? Well, Vinegar Syndrome are doing Lenses, Hitcher in the Dark as well. Of course, totally forgot about yeah, that. Which isn't a Jallo, but um, <laughs> but at least of of interest for Eurocult fans. And then, of course, um, Dutra Tassari's Puzzle has been announced by VCI. So another one that we've covered. Yeah, I just realised yeah. that now. It's like we've got two announcements from Fragment. So Crimes of the Black Cat's coming out this year as well. What else have we had? Um, nothing else in terms of Jalla that's been uh, announced, but the Severin Christopher Lee set features some interesting gothic chorus. And also one of them has, has got a connection to this episode since um, Terror in the Crypt was written by Tonino Valeri and Ernesto Gastaldi. There you go. It all yeah. connects. Yeah. And also really keen to check out that Challenge the Devil or Catarsis by Giuseppe Vegetti which is another one of those titles that haven't been around before. So should be good. Yeah, considering where it's only February, we've like, and taking into account the releases that have been announced at the end of last year, it's setting, it's setting itself up to be a very good year. So Yeah, for sure. And the Demon's come. set should be along soon, shouldn't it? I know. Well, I got a message the other day about my country. Contra- I can't speak. Contra- <laughs> Contra contra. Uh, like, yeah, I speak about film. I can't even say this word. Contributors copy. Contributors copy. That's the one. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that should be arriving through your. I think some people have already got their copies. Yeah. Like I always well, say, I'm in the Bermuda Triangle over here. I don't know. Nothing seems to come. No, I'm waiting for my later. my copy of that as well. Hopefully, arrives soon. Yes. Have we got anything else? 
other news of sorts. So we thought um, listeners might be interested in hearing about a new book that's just been released on The Shallow by Alex Heller-Nicholas entitled The Shallow Canvas. Yeah, it looks at the significance of art within The Shallow and I'm sure it will fascinate those that like engaging with those thematic ideas that we often talk about, you know, like that focus on the creative pursuits and the relevance of art and some of these key jali. And I've not read the book yet, but I've had a kind of flick through some of the chapters and there's some really good topics in there, you know, about like art and the bird of the crystal plumage, the Stendhal syndrome, um, Red Queen Kills Seven Times um, and many other films. So I think it's definitely worth, you know, a pre-order. Uh, well, I think it's actually, in fact, it's out now. I think it'll be out in most countries. Oh, so yeah, I, I think didn't know be... it's out, sorry. Yeah, I don't think Alex knew it was out. I think she kind of just got an email or something that said, oh, it's, it's out now. So um, yeah, just thought I'll bring that to anyone's attention that doesn't know about it already. Um, and then one other thing that I've just remembered now, actually, is there's been another bit of news, and that's that um, James Wan's like, shallow-flavoured passion project, Malignant, oh, has yeah. been released. Well, not released, the poster art promotional art has been released and I didn't expect that I didn't really I kind of forgot about the project but we had that really cool kind of poster of a black leather gloved hand with that ornate like golden blade and yeah. it's a really beautiful image so I'm quite intrigued now to see like uh, what's going to happen with that film because we don't really know much about it do we? No it seems like he's really got a love for the genres hopefully he can do something with it but We'll see. Always a bit nervous when it's like when people mention that it's inspired by Jalo because it doesn't always end up being that great. Yeah, because we're never really sure. Like when people, it's quite you know it can be used quite loosely, can't it? We we never know if it's like a modern interpretation or if it's something that's going to be more retro or whatever. So um yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to finding out more about it, and I really hope it's a good film. Um, and I think it's due out September, so not really that long probably to wait for more information. Yeah, or a trailer or something. Yeah, but I think he is like a really big fan of the shallow, so I'm sure he'll have some kind of interesting yeah, takes on it. So we'll see. It would be quite nice to see a big budget homage to the genre because most of the time these are fairly low budget efforts. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, like you say, it'll be really interesting to see someone with, I, I don't know what the budget is of the film, but I presume it's pretty decent because it's a James Wan project and it's something yeah. I think he's always wanted to make. Yeah. I guess it's a harder sell, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's going to be sold on the James Wan name rather than the Jallo, isn't it? Yeah, because we kind of feel like, oh, it's so obvious, like, because this is the circle that we're in. But I, yeah. I, I don't know, I guess, like, especially when you're talking about, like, the artier side of the genre, people might feel a bit like, oh, so it's like an art horror film. And what's the appeal of that? So, yeah. like you say, the promotional material will be based around the fact it's like his project. But yeah, fingers crossed. We yeah. shall see. It'll be interesting, something to um, come back and discuss. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, we might cover it on a Patreon episode because I'm sure there'll be a few people asking our opinions and we've yeah. already had the opportunity to talk about like a kind of well-known Shallow-inspired project, yeah. No. Speaking of patrons, we'd like to welcome Oliver Craner as our latest patron and we're eternally grateful to him and the rest of our patrons for supporting us. As every patron at the $5 level Oliver will get an extra episode of Fragments per month where we discuss Jalo-related topics, such as our latest one where we discuss some of our favourite set pieces. Which is really fun. Yeah, it was it was, was good really fun good to talk about those. And we also talk about like films that don't quite fit the remit of the show, such as Neo Jali. So if you want to sign up, just head over to Patreon slash Fragments Pod and you'll get access to 10 plus hours of extra content straight away and some music mixes as well. And as always, 
we'll be discussing all aspects of the film, including the set pieces, the killer and his or her motivation. So if you haven't seen this film, we recommend that you seek out the Fine Vinegar Syndrome release of this before listening. So I guess all that's left to talk about is the film itself. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about Tonino Valeri's 1972 Jago Mio Cara Assassino, or as it's known in English, My Dear Killer. She went out to play after her nap, and when her mother went to find her, she was gone. No one knows exactly what happened. The bodies were found together about a month later. about to say concerns every one of you, especially the killer. And we've decided to talk about the film because it's recently received a release from Vinegar Syndrome as part of their Forgotten Jali Volume 2 set. And as it didn't have a commentary or extra included, we thought we could perhaps provide a bit of background information and analysis to coincide with the release. As we thought it warranted discussion, it was kind of a shame that, you know, it was released without any extras. So yeah, hopefully people will appreciate this. And as well, we went a wee bit more obscure last month with our episode on fashion crimes. So we thought it was only right that we covered something that's more easily available this time around. So usually at this point in the podcast, I give a little bit of context about where the shadow was or anything notable about the time period. But I think in this instance, I'd be retreading old grounds because I'm sure by now you're all very familiar with the golden period of the shadow and how that boom occurred. So I'll just say, whilst many directors at this juncture were trying to emulate those Argento animal title jelly, here we have our director, Tonino Valeri, directing a jello, which is in a slightly different vein, one more focused on the procedural element of the genre and grounded in a more realistic style, despite the stylistic excesses present in the set pieces. The premise of the film is also slightly different than what we're typically used to because the mystery concerns the abduction of a child, which brings a different and I suppose more serious angle to proceedings and one that skews the stylistic, more pulp-based offerings that the genre is perhaps more known for. So that's perhaps what's most notable here about My Dear Killer. It's more of a procedural style jello with less of an overt focus on the stylistic excesses of the genre. It's a film that doesn't actively seek to imitate those Argento-style thrillers of the time wholly, but instead offer a slightly different interpretation of the popular Italian thriller of the early 1970s, one that feels more rooted in reality with dense themes presented and with particular attention paid to the psychological fallout of the crimes portrayed. And obviously, Peter, you'll go into the film's production history later on and talk a wee bit about um, Valeri's intention here with the film. So that's really kind of all the context I feel is necessary. I don't know if there's anything you want to add, but I feel I don't really need to labour the point about kind of the shadow cycle at this this point in time. No, I think you're right. I think people are probably familiar with this golden period. So I think you summed it up perfectly there. I'll talk a little bit about the director, Antonino Valeri, who was born on May 20th, 1934 in Montorio Alvomano in the then region of Abruzzi e Molise in southern Italy. He was the fourth of seven brothers and he was quickly given the nickname Tonino because of his diminutive size. 
His family was quite a wealthy one. His father was a landowner and a local prominent member of the fascist party. Tonino was interested in cinema from an early age and he spent all the time he could there when the cinema screened films during the weekends. And He had dreams of becoming an actor but quickly realised that he wasn't good looking enough to become a movie star so he decided he should work behind the camera instead. He read everything he came across about film and ordered books from the local bookshop on his father's account and later on managed to enrol at the CSC, the Centro Sperimentale Cinematografica in Rome, where he became friends with Ernesto Gastaldi. They both graduated in 1957 and Tonino's examination project was a filmed version of The Diary of Anne Frank. After graduation, he started working at a bank, but he was unhappy with the job and managed to get freelance work for the public broadcasting company Rai. Through a friend, he managed to get a job in the editorial department of Jolly Unidis Film and eventually getting work on the second unit or as an assistant director. He also wrote scripts with Castaldi, like the one that I mentioned before, Terror in the Crypt, which was filmed in 1964 with Christopher Lee and The Long Hair of Death, which was originally written with Valerian Minus, the director, but it ended up being helmed by Antonio Margheriti instead. Valeri was the assistant director to Sergio Leone on A Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more, and in 1966 he finally got to direct a film, Taste of Killing. He called his friend Stelvio Massi, who had worked as a camera operator for Leone and who would make his debut as the director of photography here. The film was moderately successful at the box office and Valeri's big break would come in the following year when he directed Day of Anger, starring Lee Van Cleef as an aging gunslinger who takes on the young apprentice Giuliano Gemma. The film made nearly 2 billion lira at the box office, making it the second highest grossing film of the year. His next picture, The Price of Power, again starring Gemma, didn't do quite as well, but still became the 11th highest grossing film, Italian film of the year. After three westerns in a row, Valeri wanted to explore different genres and took on a novel that had been so scandalous that the publisher had been put on trial and sentenced to six months in prison for publishing it, La Ragazza di Nome Giulio, or A Girl Called Jules. The film opened in 1970 and did not become a commercial success. His next project would be one to capitalise on the current giallo trend. It all started when screenwriters Roberto Leone and Franco Buccieri brought a treatment to Manolo Bolognini, producer of Bazzoni's La Donna del Lago and The Fifth Chord, as well as Cobuccio's Django and Pasolini's Teorema. Bolognini brought the script to Valeri, who liked it, but thought it needed some work, and Valeri and Leone rewrote and expanded parts of it during the summer of 1971. José G. Massio is also listed in the credits of the film as a screenwriter, but his name was just added to fulfil the obligations of a co-production. Yeah, so, I mean, a really interesting director in terms of kind of Italian genre cinema at the time, I suppose, yeah, mostly associated with the spaghetti western. Yeah. uh, His contributions to the genre. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about how that manifests in My Dear Killer later on. Yes. So, as always, I'll just give a brief synopsis of the film. After an insurance investigator is found decapitated in a macabre death involving the jaws of a digger, Inspector Luca Peretti is assigned to investigate the suspicious case. In a bid to locate the machine's operator, Peretti discovers that the man has already taken his life in an apparent suicide. Further sleuthing connects the two mysterious deaths to the disappearance of a young girl, Stefania, who is the daughter of a wealthy local family. As Peretti investigates how these crimes are connected, 
More key players are dispatched by the killer, who seems to be murdering anyone with information relating to the crimes. However, Peretti stumbles across a vital clue left by the missing girl that will prove to be the linchpin behind the murders and reveal that the killer is someone far closer to home than the family or Peretti perhaps suspected. Well, you didn't have a problem writing that, did you? I know, it was one of those things, though. I kind of felt like, oh, if you try to boil down the film's plot, it's... I don't mean this in a a nasty way, but it's quite simple because it's such a dialogue-heavy film that it's not full of, like, and then this happens and then they go to Athens and then this person, like, you know, is found dead and this person reappears. It's, as we'll go into, yeah, very much, like, procedural-based. Revolving much more around Peretti. Exactly. And speaking of Peretti, would you like me to talk a bit about the actor that plays him? Please do. Is I, that somebody that we've heard of before? Or? I don't think we have, have we? Just no. an unknown in the genre. <laughs> so, our protagonist, Luca Peretti, was played by Jalot Stalwart, George Hilton, who surprisingly hasn't yet appeared on our podcast, but I'm sure we'll be covering other Hilton films in the near future as he appeared in numerous chalets throughout his illustrious career. Hilton was born in 1934 in Montevideo, Uruguay, as George Hill Acosta Lara. He started off his career in radio before transitioning to acting. And as the film industry in Uruguay was small and didn't afford much in the way of opportunities for a new emerging actor, Hilton made the decision to move to Argentina to pursue his acting career and settled in Buenos Aires, adopting the moniker George Hilton. He began to work steadily, appearing in eight Argentinian films over the course of his time in the country, alongside various work in plays and soap operas. In 1963, in a spur-of-the-moment decision, he went to buy a pack of cigarettes and instead bought himself a plane ticket to Milan, as you do. And then (laughs) off he went to Italy. It was somewhat common at the time for South American actors to take advantage of the burgeoning Italian film industry, and Hilton was one such example. Initially working in small bit parts, he quickly found meteor work, landing a role in the pirate film The Masked Man Against the Pirates, which led to a role in spy comedy The Amazing Dr. G the following year. Hilton got his big break when he was cast alongside Franco Nero in Lucio Fulci's 1966 spaghetti western Massacre Time, which led to several other leading parts in western films, making George Hilton one of the most well-known names in the genre. His role as mysterious gunslinger Alleluia, alongside other appearances in Giuliano Carnameo's westerns, brought him popularity in Spain as well as in his new home of Italy. When the spaghetti western waned in popularity, Hilton started to appear in Jali and became notable to audiences today for his on-screen chemistry with Jalot leading lady Edwige Fenech. The pair went on to make three highly successful Jali, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, All the Colours of the Dark, and The Case of the Body Iris. Hilton is most well known for his collaborations with director Sergio Martino, with the two making three films together, the aforementioned All the Colours of the Dark and The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, as well as The Case of the Scorpion's Tail. Hilton continued to work in the genre, racking up several credits and starring roles, effortlessly moving between the role of hero and villain, often acting as the perfect red herring with his suave, sophisticated charms. George Hilton also worked in the Puzzioteche, fantasy and post-apocalyptic genres throughout the 1970s and into the 1980s. And he was adept at turning his hand to different genres and portraying different sorts of characters, switching between dramatic and comedic roles. Hilton began to work less in the 1980s, same old story as we're always kind of discussing on the podcast. He mainly appeared in television productions alongside some of the aforementioned genre productions. And one of my personal favourites, and I know it's one of your personal favourites as well, is his role in The Raiders of Atlantis as the scholarly Professor Peter Saunders, which he's really good in it. And that's 
a real fun film if you're wanting to see kind of old, like, you know, your favourite actors from the 1970s, like Ivan Rasimov and George Hilton and kind of a later kind of period production. It's, yeah, a lot of fun. Hilton was in a few cinematic productions in the 2000s, but largely spent his time enjoying his twilight years, although he frequently gave interviews and insights into his career during Italy's golden age of cinema. And he's one of those actors that feels, you know, like at the time he was prepared to speak about his career and looked upon these roles like very fondly. He wasn't somebody who you know was ashamed or felt like oh that's behind him he was always very gracious and yeah. good about interviews um sadly he passed away in 2019 of a long school's illness but he left a lasting legacy as one of the great stars of italian genre cinema and when george hilton reflected on his career he cited my dear killer as one of his favorite performances alongside his roles in massacre time the ruthless four and the case of the scorpion's tail And despite reservations about his suitability for the role of Peretti in My Dear Killer and scepticism from others, Hilton proved his naysayers wrong, rising to the challenge of portraying Peretti on screen, a difficult task considering the English-speaking requirements of the role. And arguably, as we'll get into later on, Hilton's turn as Peretti is one of his most accomplished and nuanced performances within the Jalo. Yeah, he's Mr. Jalo really, isn't he? Yeah. I don't think there's really any debate, is there, about who's, like, the best... Well, not the, the best seems unfair, because that's, you know, like, ranking, but I think the most prolific and kind of person that you feel, like, most embodies, like, what the genre is about. Yeah, and like you said, he was the perfect red herring, so he's perfect from that point of view as well, in that he could play either the hero or the villain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, like, as I said, we'll get into, but with My Dear Killer, he plays a sort of different character, which is an anomaly compared to his typical characters in in the genre. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's nice to discuss a slightly different performance from him. Absolutely. Right, I'll move on and talk about his colleague in the film, Chief Maro, who's played by Salvatore Randone, who was born Salvatore Randone in Syracuse in Sicily, September 25th, 1906. He got his start in the theatre and ran his own company, as well as appearing in other prestigious theatre productions. He made his debut film performance in 1943, but it wasn't until the 1960s that his film career really started to take off appearing in films by such prestigious directors as Sorlini, Pietrangeli, Lizzani and Francesco Rossi. He was also a favourite of Elio Petri and he appeared in about half a dozen of the director's films from Petri's debut L'Assassino in The Excellent I Giorni Contatti, The Tenth Victim and Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. He won the Nastro d'Argento, the Silver Ribbon, for his roles in L'Assassino and The Working Class Goes to Heaven, as well as a Grol d'Oro for his lead in I Giorni Contatti. He also appeared in a lot of TV and was a much-loved actor, often appearing in somewhat grumpy roles. For the Eurocult fan, he's probably best remembered for roles in Bazzoni and Rossellini's The Possessed, Marguerite's Castle of Blood, as well as Fernando de Leo's Shoot First and Die Later. He passed away at the age of 84 in Rome on March 6, 1991. It's interesting because it's the usual thing where these actors, you might not think much about them when you're watching it, but then when you hear about their kind of background, obviously if, if you've watched Petri's films then you're familiar with him from them, but you kind of don't get that cultural awareness of like the television aspect that you just talked about that you know he was prolific there and much loved so yeah it's always really nice to hear that kind of background on these actors and get a sense of who he was kind of culturally at the time yeah apparently a really well-known theater actor in in italy as well which is as we've discussed before something that's really difficult for us is talking about these people 50 years later on 
Is it 50 years now? Is it? Uh, yeah, it is 50 years. So you said 50 the... years late. 50s. No, even even earlier than that yeah. because it was active even before these films. So like 60, 70 years ago, it's quite difficult to gauge how well known they were in the theatre. But he seems to have been a, a much loved actor. Yeah, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to find out like even the productions that people were in because, I mean, we've talked before about how IMDb isn't a reliable source anyway, but like, where do you go a lot of the time for like theatre productions, not only theatre productions, but ones outside your own native country. It's, yeah, tricky to find out that information. Yeah, very tricky indeed. We're not going to talk about William Berger, who plays Giorgio Canavese, because we've already talked about him extensively on the Murder Clinic episode. Yep. And Marilu Tullo, we are also not going to talk about her because we covered her on our episode about the devil a couple of months ago. But we will mention Donna Ghia, who plays Eleonora Moroni, the mother. She was born Felicita Gia on July 13th, 1932 in Milan. And she began her career as a singer after taking part in a student show in Milan, 1953. After a couple of years, she took part in a, a TV show called Primo Applauso, a talent show. And she started getting work with Rai, singing in other TV shows and touring all over the world, actually. She released more than a dozen singles in 1958-1959. It's, it's like big band, easy listening type songs. There's actually an album on Spotify available if anybody wants to check it out. I've been listening to it all week. It's, it's really good if you like that kind of um, Italian easy listening style music. Her acting career started in 1963, and according to the IMDb, she first appeared in Questo Pazzo Pazzo Mondo della Canzone, this crazy, crazy world of songs, unless I'm mistaken. Wonderful title. She appeared in several jallies, such as The Bloodstained Butterfly, Smile Before Death, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, and Nine Guests for a Crime. So she had parts in numerous films, but never any leads, and her acting career never really properly took off. She appeared in about two dozen or so roles until 1977, when she stopped acting in films, with only the occasional TV credit after that. There's no news about her having passed away, but she's getting on a bit. She'll be 89 this year. She's indeed still alive. Perhaps another example of a face that will be familiar to people, but maybe not a name. Yeah. I say because she didn't have that kind of, I don't say starring role because that sounds stupid, but yeah, just never had the kind of leading roles that would maybe kind of require more attention and kind of focus no. on her. But I didn't know anything about her, sing- like her singing career, so that's really fascinating for me. Yeah, listen to it. It's great stuff. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to send me a link on Spotify. And, yeah, I will yeah. do. So as we've said, we've kind of covered a lot of the people in this film, like in other episodes, and we've just, you know, done the main players there. So I I thought it might be worth mentioning another name, or in this case, face, that might be familiar to fans of Italian cult cinema, but maybe not immediately so. And that is little girl Stefania, who was played by the German actress Lara Wendel. Now, Wendel was born Daniela Radkel Barnes on the 29th of March, 1965, in Munich, Germany. Her father, Walt Barnes, was an American football player and actor, and her mother, Britta Barnes, nee Wendel, was a German actress. So Wendel came from showbiz beginnings and was somewhat destined for a career in cinema. Her brother, Mikael Barnes, also entered the industry and secured minor and uncredited roles in films like The Fifth Chord, Ring of Darkness and Lost and Found. So Lara Wendel made her cinematic debut in My Dear Killer at the tender age of only seven, credited as Daniela Raquel Barnes. She would later take the name Lara from the last two letters and first two letters of her real name. Prior to landing the role of Stefania, Wendel had appeared in various print ads from the age of four, which acquainted her with work in front of the camera. 
And in those early years, she thought of the work as fun and enjoyable. She didn't really think of it as work at all. You know, when you're you're that age, I guess it's just like playing. Yeah. Post My Dear Killer, Wendell appeared in other Italian genre film as child characters, such as in her roles in Delio's Manhunt in 1972 and Brilli's The Perfume of the Lady in Black in 1974. And while she wasn't as prolific as her contemporaries like Nicoletta Elmi, Wendell still proved to be a competent child actor. As she approached adolescence, she transitioned into more prominent roles, uh, most notably her role as Laura in Pier Giuseppe Murgia's Mala Docenza in 1977. The film that dealt with the taboo subject of sex and adolescence was popular and proved to be a launching pad for similar controversial style roles involving adult themes such as incest, sex and sexual activity within adolescence, themes which were somewhat commonplace during the era. As a result, Vendel was known for playing Lolita-style characters and continued to take on these sorts of roles during the tail end of the 1970s in productions like Little Girl in Blue Velvet and Mimi. The end of the 1970s marked Vendel's return to horror in Pierre Carpi's wonderful Ring of Darkness, alongside genre stalwarts such as Marissa Mel and Valentina Cortesi. In the 1980s, the teenage Vendel continued working in horror cinema whilst dipping her toes into other genres, including a performance in Antonioni's romantic drama Identification of a Woman in 1982. During this decade, she appeared in her most well-known role to foreign audiences as Maria in Dario Argento's Tenebrae, and other memorable horror roles include her performances in Umberto Lenzi's Ghost House and Lamberto Baba's You'll Die at Midnight, as well as Zombie 5, Killing Birds and Red Monks, produced as part of the Lucio Fulci Presents series of films. The 1990s marked a move away from horror and Vendel's second foray into television with the series College. Her first television outing being uh, the La Piovra series, which we've previously mentioned in the podcast. And the series College also featured a performance from the aforementioned George Hilton. So it's just another link between actors. After an appearance in Moro Bolignini's, which you've mentioned him a minute ago, so that's it's again all linking, um, Husbands and Lovers in 1991 and a few other major projects, Vendel retired from acting at the age of only 26 and went on to get married and have three children. In 2013, she made a rare appearance on the Italian television show Stracult to talk about her experiences acting in Italy in her youth. She's one of those actresses that we're probably never going to cover again, so I thought maybe worth yeah. mentioning. Yeah, I really like her, as as I mentioned in one of the Patreon episodes. I talked a little bit about the set piece that she's in in Turnabray. I think she's really good in that film. I she, mean, she's good in, in all the films she's in. Yeah, she's she a is. She's actress. And so young, like, to get into all of this and playing quite challenging roles. I mean, I, d- I don't know if it made the edit last time, but when we talked briefly about these sorts of kind of, like, incest and sexually controversial films in the 70s, yeah, she very much kind of made a name for herself doing that. But you can see why maybe, like, she probably enjoyed, it seems like she enjoyed acting, but, you know, she wanted to go on and marry and have children and leave that behind. So she seems happy enough in the present day, which is good. Yeah, and especially coming from that genre background, the industry more or less dried up anyway. Yeah, that's the, true. It the late 80s, early 90s. Indeed, indeed. So, <laughs> shall we get stuck in with a film? I'll try to, yeah, let's do it. I'm just thinking, you know, I suppose what's perhaps notable about My Dear Killer is that emphasis on the procedural element of the shadow, which is relatively uncommon in a genre that's seemingly more focused on the amateur sleuth protagonists with the 
police typically uh, depicted as feckless and competent, you know, an obstruction to solving the murders in their retrospective films. So I suppose I would say that's maybe what stands out the most about this film compared to other Kinejali of the time. Yeah. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I certainly think it is. There are a few other examples of films that focus on a little bit more on the procedural side, like um, Duccio Tassari's Death Occurred Last Night. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, Black Belly of the Tarantula for Giancarlo Gianni's character, Inspector Tolini, feels like he's sort of related a bit to um, to Peretti here. But most of the films inspired by The Bird with the Crystal Plumage went in, in another direction. So it stands out from that point of view. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, as you said, those kind of films you'd group together, but they're more of an anomaly in the genre. It seems like the amateur sleuth side of things was more popular and that was kind of adhered more to the conventions of the Jalo during this period. And you've cited really good examples and I don't want to go into our, our Patreon content, but you've spoken both, you've spoken about those characters and, and that side of things, about how these kind of inspector characters tend to be more engaging and interesting. Um, you're coming at the kind of case from a different angle than we're typically used to yeah and you know here the police are portrayed in a far more positive light and Hilton's Luca Peretti is is shown to be a man who cares deeply about the job at hand and he and his colleagues are legitimately concerned by what's taking place and are determined to explore every avenue steadfast in their approach to interview potential suspects and to track down and warn those at, at risk so it's a far more sympathetic portrayal of the police than we're typically used to seeing aside you know those examples aside um their work is methodical and by all accounts by the book which i suppose creates a kind of drier feel to the film doesn't it because it's methodical and it goes through those motions it's not about you know someone being thrown into danger because they're the police they have a certain more kind of sense of control than you know like the amateur sleuth style characters but yeah it's, it's very much a proper investigation and we don't have those outlier kind of characters joining in or, or aiding it the focus is very much on Peretti's investigation and his colleagues yeah I suppose when you tell the story from this angle from the inspector side of things you need to spend a little bit more time on the investigation and mm. whereas if you've got somebody who's just dropped in the middle of the mystery you can just pick up on certain aspects but this way you have to sort of tell the whole story show the um, interrogations and that sort of thing that you don't have to spend time on if you do another kind of protagonist so you get a lot of sort of good old-fashioned police work here whether it's like looking through the suits or checking out that suicide which isn't a suicide so you get a lot more scenes like that here yeah absolutely it's very much you know um Peretti going from environment to environment and like you said like finding those clues and doing a bit of like classic detective style work and interviewing suspects and more kind of dialogue heavy scenes where he's trying to like get information out of people or find these links which is again different maybe not what we're typically used to but I think it works equally well as you say, you know, seeing the other side of the case and we're typically used to. Yeah. I watched an extra with screenwriter Leone and apparently the role of Peretti was meant to be a more political character, more leaning towards hippodom than in the current form. And he was supposed to like pick up his girlfriend from a sit-in at the university. They had originally eyed Giancarlo Gianni for the role, but mm -hmm. Polonini, the producer, didn't want a thespian type actor. So 
they turned to George Hilton, which was a more commercial choice. But obviously, it wouldn't work quite as well with a character coming from Hippidum if Hilton is playing him. So they switched it up a little bit. But I still think it's an interesting role. And like you said, he's a more sort of reflective and humane than perhaps Hilton normally got to play. Yeah, I mean, it's like unlike, you know, many of the stereotypical and like incompetent inspector characters that we're used to seeing that populate the feel on, you know, Hilton's Peretti feels markedly different and he does feel like a more fleshed out character who struggles with the emotional toil of his work and we see that through his struggle to solve the case and I think what's quite interesting is we also have this, like you talked there about the extra where it's this idea of his girlfriend being involved in the sit-in but here we have that kind of relationship portrayed in a slightly different way because he's got this struggle in his home life with his relationship with Dr. Anna, um, played by Marilu Togo. And we see this clash between the couple. Um, she's a doctor, he's an inspector. It feels like a very kind of modern relationship in this, yeah. you know, he's got all this troubles with his work and trying to solve this case. And then on top of that, he's got to go home every night and, and deal with her saying, you're never here. And he's saying, well, you're never there. And she's never there at the end of the phone. And it feels a lot more realistic. It feels like something that I think that anyone can relate to you know and troubles and stuff and that you have within your relationship and and whilst Dr Anna clearly loves Peretti she's not prepared to give up her work and her own vocation to be this meek housewife we don't really see much of her character but you kind of get the sense that maybe the home is like her home rather than his home I'm not 100% sure on that I don't know what your thoughts were on it quite possibly but I certainly agree I think even though she's not in it that much Mm -hmm. it feels because they're both good actors and they pick out situations that sort of reflect their relationship quite well how they haven't got time to see each other and like playing catch up through answering machines and stuff so it's interesting because it's such a far cry from like the supermen of the poliziotesque genre yeah well I mean that's the thing isn't it it's like it's refreshing in a way because we have a Jalo where she's a career woman and she's not kind of got what we would maybe assume is a frivolous career but she is you know a doctor and she's got this this serious job and they're more like equals yeah than maybe you would see in another shadow and you know i think in a more traditional by the number shadow she might kind of fall into this like victim role yeah but here i'd argue she's more like used in a more nuanced way and she gives insight into Peretti's life and i know that doesn't sound very like pro-feminist or whatever that she's this prop to his own emotional toils but um, i think that really helps to flesh out his character you know to see these struggles within the workplace and and at home and I suppose like another thing is that in another shallow, and I don't want to keep saying like, oh, in your typical shallow and in this, but he never really gets any respite from his work. You know, home has its own challenges, as I said. And, you know, he's he's going to the shack in one scene, and then he's going to that suicide, you know, like where the suicide takes place in a kind of, is it like a cattle shed or some sort of, yeah, you know, place like that. And he's not going to these spaces that we would typically see. He's not going to bars. He's not going to nightclubs. He doesn't seem to be having these kind of, frivolous arguments with his girlfriend about seeing another woman or something so it really grounds the film in this sort of kind of realism mm. yeah certainly not a jet set jello yeah exactly it just feels more like more real and yeah he doesn't get any respite and the world that he you know inhabits feels bereft of glamour um, mm. and there's a sense of, of monotony I would say the humdrum realities of life I don't know if that's maybe me being a bit over generous there but it's, it certainly does feel like there's more of a kind of of a challenge in his life and there's less of the kind of fun jet set side, as you said. Yeah, the Pareto role certainly feels a lot more grounded than if you look at Hilton's other role in the Martino Jally. It's certainly not the debonair playboy type here. Yeah. It's, 
I mean, almost mundane. I know, because it's like when you say words like mundane, it, it's like we're not using it like in a, in a negative way, but I think it no, highlights not. the themes of the film and what the film's about compared to your, your standard channel. Yeah. But I think, you know, the casting of George Hilton here is really inspired. I don't know about you, but when I first saw this film, and I'm sure we'll get into kind of aspects of this later, I felt almost like I was expecting George Hilton to play one of those kind of roles. Yeah. I was quite surprised it was a more straight-laced um, performance. And there was aspects of the film that maybe I felt let down by because I had certain expectations. But, you know, like watching it, you know, again, subsequently watching it for this, you really kind of appreciate his character. And you can see why George Hilton himself thought Peretti was one of, the, of his best roles. I think, yeah. you know, there's a lot more to his character than perhaps some of his others. Yeah, because I can imagine this being a little bit more of a challenge for him because he couldn't sort of switch off and just rely on his natural charm which he could mm. do in a lot of of the spaghetti westerns and to some extent in the martino films but i think he fares well in the more dramatic roles two faces of fear is another one mm-hmm. another giallo where he plays a more sort of straight laced character and i think even though that film is not entirely successful i think he does well yeah it's a good performance from hilton in that it's one of those films that i feel maybe would be a good one to cover on the podcast in the future and maybe we could do yeah. a bit of comparison with that role yeah but yeah no it's it's a it's a different role for hilton here but i'm um, one that he's very successful and i'd say and because he doesn't have doesn't get to rely on those heroics or those villainous traits that he would typically utilize it, it means he kind of challenges himself in ways that we're not yeah used to seeing yeah the relationship with um, Dr. Anna is obviously really good, but I'm also a big fan of the relationship that he's got with his um, with his deputy, the the elderly Maro, played by Salvio Randona. I mm-hmm. think that's a really interesting relationship as well, and how these two men, with a lot of respect for each other, and how they work together for such a long time that they're almost like a couple, not in that jokey way, but it's just like they know what the other person is thinking and it seems like a quite tender relationship between those two that I really like. Yeah, no, absolutely agree with that. And it's interesting because you think about, like you said there, it would be so easy for it to be that kind of jokey style role or he could be, you know, like an obstruction. Yeah. But they've gone for that more tender, more realistic um, kind of camaraderie between the two. And it's really nice to see on screen and it's hard to compare that with another film because it's so distinctive in My Dear Killer and such an um, anomaly in the genre. Yeah. To see these kind of um, fatherly kind of... Would you say it's fatherly? Say kind of- it is like a father and son relationship in some ways, I think. I mean, yeah. it's one of those that I think, I wish I could have seen a little bit more of that, but what's there on screen really appeals to me. And like you said, when it's like a deputy in a jalo, it's more or less equal with like a comedic sidekick type role. So good to see something else here. Yeah, it's refreshing. And yeah. Yeah, it's like the film in general. I think Valeri could have easily kind of gone for like a cheap option with a lot of kind of aspects of the plotting characterization, but he doesn't. He decides to go with something that differs from kind of what you would typically expect. So though, like as I said, when I first watched it, and when other people might have first watched it, they felt they might have felt like, oh, it's it's not what I expected. But then when you kind of rewatch it, you realize that that's that's a good thing. It's good that yeah. it kind of plays with those conventions a bit. I really enjoyed it this time round. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously a really good-looking edition of the film, but I haven't seen it for a few years, and I, I thought it was it was better than I remembered it to be. Yeah. Yeah, I would certainly say so. It 
in this film, like in quite a few other Jali, you get these conflicts within a well-to-do family who are respectable looking on the surface, but underneath there's like a, a nest of vipers and mm. perversion and there's hate or at least clearly not getting along with each other. One of the brothers, the artist Benjamino, is like openly regarded with contempt and it seems like the siblings are aware of his sexual deviances. He paints these paintings with doll's heads and he's got this young girl there who's modelling for him, which is a quite shocking scene these days, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of in my notes. I, I made a comment about that because it's something you kind of occasionally see in films of this time period. And it's always really like shocking just to see the image of like a, a child presented in that way. And then not only have you got that kind of shocking visual reaction to occurring in the film, but then you've got this like, I should say, this like deviant undercurrent to why that child is there, what's yeah. going on. Like you say, those like strange doll heads in the artwork. Um, and it's, it's such a quick scene. And it's never really yeah. explored again in the film, but it's just something that really makes you kind of feel very unpleasant to watch. And um, but I don't think it's sleazy, and I don't mean to say like it's it's not warranted. No, it's it's difficult with that one because um, obviously in, in this day and age, it's a it's a really shocking scene. Mm-hmm. But growing up in the seventies, I remember naked kids in in children's shows, so it wasn't a big thing in the seventies. It wasn't shocking in the way that it is now. Yeah. But the other thing is here. I mean, it's obviously meant to show that he's a perverted person, even though it's not, as you said, it's not a sexual scene, but it's obviously there to make us aware of him being a sexual deviant. But it's not the first time in an Italian genre film where they comment on something and, like, look how horrible it is that he's a, that he's a paedophile and they end up exploiting the child at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's like, like the involvement of children in these sorts of films can at times feel exploitative or a little cra- a little crass, to say the least. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, My Dear Killer, like I said, I'm not saying it's okay that that scene's in the film, especially, you know, from, from modern eyes. But I think, you know, as a film alongside like Who Saw Her Die or uh, like um, Don't Torture Duckling, it is a more serious treatment of, you know, the kidnapping and death of a child. And I think whilst My Dear Killer is less invested in that emotional toll and follow of such an event we we do get a window into the anguish it presents and you know we see stefania's mother sorrowfully i think she's like knitting for a daughter waiting her for waiting for her to return home and like seemingly trapped in this delusional state and we get that kind of psychological insight into her character so i feel like it's never too exploited so okay that seems like different from you know the crux of the film but because the film at large talks about children in a way that seems a bit more nuanced it doesn't feel like really cheap and exploitative in the way that it probably would in like those films that you're talking about yeah it could have been done just as effectively without it though i think yeah that's the thing it's, it's not certainly not necessary i think there's probably like another way you could get around it but like you say maybe back then it wasn't really seen as as shocking as it would be now like I said, it yeah. is really shocking. Like when I watched it again for the podcast i was like oh my god that's really like makes me feel uncomfortable watching it yeah you were onto something there, which I think is one of the one of the things that I thought of when I rewatched it now, and how it treats the kidnapping and the loss of Stefania, 
the mother because I really, really like this film. I think it's a great giallo. I think it's really well made. I think it's a good central mystery. But I do think that the murder of Stefania and the mechanics of the aftermath is somewhat squandered in the film because usually the murder of children hits quite hard. There are quite a few examples, like you mentioned, Who Saw a Die, Don't Torture a Duckling, and also Donatella in Death Occurred Last Night. So it's quite easy to imagine the painful impact and the loss of, of both your daughter and, and your husband to a kidnapping on the mother. But we see so little of their relationship before the kidnapping. I mean, we see Stefania playing outside and then we see her mother looking for her when she's lost. And I think if they would have shown a little bit more of their relationship, it would have managed to convey that sense of grief and sorrow in a much better way. Because if you compare it to how effective the scenes between George Lasenby and Nicoletta Elmi are in Who Saw Her Die, it's so devastating. And here, I know it's not the mother's story, but I think it would have worked in the film's favour if we would have seen some flashbacks between the two and their interaction and the mother's feeling for her daughter. And as it stands now, it films sort of more or less throws us in post-abduction post-breakdown of the mother and I think it would have benefited from making the mother a more multifaceted character because she's just here as this shell of a former self really isn't she yeah I mean I do like the scene where we see her kind of you know lamenting the loss of her daughter kind of like clearly emotionally disturbed I think that does yeah. give insight it's just difficult because again it like it's Peretti's story so it's, it's a case of like how much of that do you show versus like how much do you focus on procedural element I guess like what it would be like you've kind of indicated there is to have another scene or another indication or explore some of those other relationships I do think like the flashbacks at the ending are strangely more effective but maybe that's a little bit like a little too late I mean I think it does give the film some sort of emotional gravitas and underlines what underpins the film thematically you know that premature loss of a child and we see you know those relationships between Stefania and the family and you see that kind of sorrowful moment of like that reflecting on this life that she lived and the joy that she brought you know against the harsh reality of the situation but but again like like you said it it does come at the ending so though it's sad and I do think that but still like I found it did pack a punch still but yeah maybe it just feels like for some people maybe you don't feel as invested in that loss as you might have done you saw more of her character but but again it's you can kind of see why that is just based on the kind of the vein that the film goes down yeah the crime in itself is so brutal really i mean they they leave this little girl to die with a father lying dead with a crushed skull and her hands and feet are tied with an iron wire in a bunker so she's essentially left to starve to death with her dead father it's extraordinarily yeah. grim stuff really isn't it really grim it's, it's hard like I kind of I'm not like overly critical because I feel like you know compared to who saw her die that's like such a different beast in terms of like Peretti versus George Lazenby's character yeah that film is such a great example of like the loss of a child but yeah like you yeah. said it's not her story so I just don't know I'm just yeah. trying to think in my mind of like where else would you think I know but I'm wondering how they could maybe have like brought that in more yeah, but I'm thinking um, Death Occurred Last Night. They don't spend that much time with the daughter, but yet you feel more for her there than you do here, I think. Sorry, I'm not going to get bogged down too much in <laughs> no, this. No, yeah, no, that's fair. I, yeah, it's just funny because I never really thought about it. I felt kind of like watching it, I was happy enough with kind of the trauma of what happened with the child. But no, it's interesting for me just to kind of reflect back and think, was that enough or not? Yeah, because I, yeah. I think I, I was okay with that, you know, yeah. based on what we saw and the way the film set up but yeah definitely a criticism that's valid 
one of my favorite scenes there is where speaking of flashbacks and where Hilton is talking to the staff in the kitchen and the camera pans outside and the scene where they discover Stefania has been kidnapped is playing out so you sort of pan from present time to a flashback I love that kind of stuff yeah that's really cleverly done and again it's that contrast isn't it between like the mundane and the horrific yeah and it's about that finding the kind of horrific like the horrific in the mundane um, yeah. yeah, it's really clever how you kind of go through time and see what's happened there. And again, a really kind of shocking moment in the film, which yeah, is yeah. highlighted more because of that juxtaposition. Yeah, very nicely done. Did you have anything more there on children that you wanted to? Not really, just kind of said about the plot device, about the drawing. We have this vital clue that's like left left behind by Stefania about how she's this great drawer and she has this like um, drawing in her Donald Duck book and then of course the drawing on the mirror at the end and you know, like a children's kind of children's artwork is something we see in the shallow like quite frequently, you know, aligns the film with the likes of Argento's Deep Red. And I think, you know, there's something vaguely sinister about that as well, about how we're seeing this like child's drawing and how these childlike images are being used and that sense of innocence. And it ties into, you know, Stefania being murdered. Well, yeah, I'm going to say it's because it is murder, just, you know, not by yeah. the hands of the killer. But, you know, it's that sense of innocence lost in the bastardization of childhood or glob childhood. But so much of the mystery hinges on the significance of the kidnapping of Stefania that it feels fitting that this drawing she's created provides a vital clue to solving what happened to her. And there's something rather poetic about that, that even, you know, through the loss of a child, even after her life has been stolen from her, she's able to leave something behind that will bring about justice and put her at peace in some way. Yeah. I think that's something that I find at least nice about, well, it's not nice, but yeah, like something horrible happens to her, but there is some sort of like vindication through her own hands. Like she's able to kind of solve her own murder. Yeah. Even if she can't prevent it. Just thinking about set pieces, memorable mm-hmm. scenes here. Like it starts off with certainly one of the most eye-catching murders in Jallo history. So mm-hmm. what do you think about that opening murder? Does it work or is it silly? I really like it. I don't I can see why people would think it's silly, but I think with certain genre expectations it doesn't seem that absurd, does it? And I think no. what's quite nice about that vinegar syndrome edition of the film is that the vivid green of the digger really seems to stand out amongst that marshland. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's excessive? I think like the set pieces in the film probably could be accused of being like more in the stylistic excessive vein, but I don't think I think that again it's like it juxtaposes nicely against the realities of the situations in between. So yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I'm just rambling there. On you go, you tell me what you think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it shouldn't work, but it does work. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. It could have just ended up being really silly, but I think Valeri manages to make it work. I mean, obviously, props to uh, to the stuntman who who did that because <laughs> it must know. have been quite a scary thing to do. But it certainly grabs you from the very beginning and pulls you in, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's quite interesting to have, like you said, they have these excessive set pieces, considering that the rest of the film isn't that excessive. Yeah, and that's what I kind of struggled with when I wrote my notes because I was saying to myself, I was like, I kept laboring this point in my like in my mind of yeah, it's like a lot more routine, it's a lot more based in reality, it's grittier than some of the other jelly. It's yeah, it's certainly not a jet set example. But then I was like, but the set pieces, there's no getting around the fact that the set pieces are excessive and more in tune with what people would think of as of the genre. Like I know not, not like the suicide and things, but like as we'll get into in a moment, you know, the buzzsaw murder, yeah. the digger murder. I mean, on paper and visually they are very much, you know, the hallmarks of like those quintessential jallies. So it, it's strange to kind of observe those contrasts and it's strange that, they, that it works. 
Like it feels yeah. like it shouldn't work having those two elements. Now I get what you mean. We said that it doesn't feel like it's inspired by Argento in the, in the way that many of the other thrillers of, of the era was, but there are some bits that feel very much Argento to me, like the scenes with um, Signora Paradisi's murder, mm-hmm. where the killer strangles her at the post office, and the stalking of the school teacher that's reminiscent of Argento as well, which is perhaps not all that surprising considering that the film was edited by Franco Fraticelli, who edited The Bird with the Crystal Plumage in Cat and Nine Tales, and the score, of course, composed by Ennio Morricone as well. Yeah, that's certainly one of the big comparisons that you can draw. I think there's certainly concessions made, isn't there, to those typical jelly of the time. But again, because Fellerie is quite like a talent, well, I say quite, that sounds harsh. He is a talented director, and I think he's able to kind of elevate the subject matter beyond just being like pastiche of kind of what was popular at the time. So yeah. it's satisfying for a kind of a fan of the Jello that's looking for those elements because they, they are present, but I guess just presented in a slightly different way because you've got those scenes in between that are quite different. But yeah, yeah. black gloves, you know, that but that wonderful scene where we've got the telephone that's in that bright green, isn't it? Just like the, the crane or digger or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, I love, I just was going to say, because it's like, <laughs> it's just, it just came to me there. You know what, what scene I absolutely love in this film is that moment in the post office you know, like when she goes into the post office and then you just see the black leather gloved hand come out kind of from nowhere out of shot and yeah. pull off like her kind of headscarf because it feels like so intimate is the scene. And yeah, yeah it's, it's quite a strange scene in some ways. And I like that it takes place in this busy post office during the daytime and it's an environment that you'd consider to be safe. But, you know, in the aftermath, the post office customers say they well everybody kind of recounts that the the killer looks a different way and it's that thing in the shadow with perception and you know your perception of the perpetrator not always being a true indication of what's happened or who they are and you know people hiding in plain sight and respectable people like on the surface being something much darker underneath which again aligns with the ending of the film so i really like that but even though it's probably not everyone's standout set piece in the film but it's, it's nicely done No, I agree. I think it's a really good set piece as well. Even though the one that that will come to most people's minds when this film is discussed is the set piece when the teacher is killed with a a circular saw. In um, Roberta Curti's highly recommended book on Tonina Valeri, Valeri himself describes how the blade of the circular saw was made with aluminum paper or aluminum foil and glued to make it a bit stiffer and then cut to shape. And the teacher's robe had been pre-sliced and then it was pulled apart by strings during the scene. So it's it's a really effective scene, I think. It's like a really interesting story how they like put it together. It's really cool kind of finding out the um, mechanics of scenes like that. But it's, yeah, it's a great scene. I love the again, use of POV and it's so, so claustrophobic and it's just brilliant camera work, I think. You know? Yeah. It feels like it's this tiny apartment, but, and it does feel claustrophobic, but also feels kind of labyrinthian. Yeah. She's trying to escape. Yeah, that's definitely the stand, like other than the opening, that's definitely the standout set piece. And I love the kind of bit before that with the killer tracking her. It really kind yeah, of I love, I, I don't know what it is about those scenes, but I think both those scenes where he tracks Signora Paradisi and the teacher on a really quiet street, they look great, I think. Yeah, they just photograph really well. And I said there's that kind yeah. of intimacy. Yeah. Oh, I'd probably get myself running into hot water saying that, you know, it's just something about tracking someone you're just always very effective if not problematic yeah <laughs> it's great watching women be tracked late at night um i guess it's you know like for me i always think it's quite like a, a relatable fear 
Yeah, oh, I can certainly imagine. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes, like, I think any woman, well, men probably feel it as well, you know, like, you almost kind of, like, when you watch these scenes in films, it's like something that comes into your mind when you're walking home at three in the morning in the dark. Yeah, <laughs> blasting the Tenebrae soundtrack in your earphones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> blasting the big band music. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's any other um, set pieces that, I mean, it's not, like, really set piece heavy as a film. But the no, it's those ones. Quality. The other scenes which I really enjoy, which we haven't touched upon, mm-hmm. are the scenes with um, the human magpie, Mattia, yeah. who's played by Dante Maggio, and his fiancée, Adele, played by Lola Gauss and uh, Peretti. I I love those scenes that they've got together. Yeah, they're, it's kind of one of those things I've actually overlooked, I've not mentioned in my notes, but yeah, no, they're, they're really well done. They kind of add like, something to the film. Yeah, comedy without being like overly comedic, but just that. Yeah, again, it's another example, isn't it, of like how you could easily overdo it or over egg it, but it's like just enough. You have these elements, but there's that level of restraint in it. Yeah, and an, an interesting contrast between the two relationships there between Peretti and Doctor Borghese, yeah, uh, and and um, and Mattia and Adele. Yes, yeah, a nice contrast. It's quite interesting to see, you know, like those two relationships and how much they differ. Yeah, and we should probably touch upon the ending as well. Always helpful. Which is like an Agatha Christie style gathering of of suspects. Exactly. It's it's quite unusual, isn't it? But it's yeah, immediately yeah. calls to mind Agatha Christie. So Peretti brings all the potential suspects together, and he directly addresses the killer and. I love his little speech there with like, this is the story of your madness, my dear assassin, and addressing his coldness and cynicism. It's also quite fitting that he uses a mirror because it's so often used in, in Jali to show characters' duplicitous natures. So it's it's fitting that it's used to reveal the killer here. Yeah, I think that's really cleverly done, the way that the mirror like is held up to each character and it kind of gives us, the viewer, a moment to reflect on are they the killer, like what are their motivations and it gives the character themselves in the film like a moment to reflect on like what they've done to kind of bring themselves to that moment, whether they're kind of innocent or guilty. Um, yeah. It's just really incredibly effective and again, it's a good way of like, you know, imbuing suspense into the scene. And of course, just as we're about to see who the killer is, the power goes out. So it's like yeah. double kind of, double buff. Well, not double buff, but you know what I mean? It's like, just as we think we're going to find out, it's like eked out a bit longer. Yeah. I mean, the mirror forces them to sort of confront themselves and he can't... Can't confront himself, exactly. It's like he want... Again, it's that thing of the darkness, isn't it? He just wants to like shroud himself in darkness and not face up to kind of the reality of the situation. Like yeah. Say that, like the mirror exposes, the light exposes. Yeah. He wants them to leave him in the dark and... And it's all because his brother didn't love him, and yeah, well, what was his reasons really? I know it's so like it's it is a classic example, isn't it? Of like a very abrupt, abrupt end, and you're kind of sat there going like, oh, okay, I just need a bit, I need like a minute longer to kind of process the motivations there. Yeah, seems to be yeah, kind of sibling rivalry and. I don't know. And it says something about the little girl was mine, all mine. But again, it's not it's not very clear, is it? No. No, but he's, he seems to feel like overlooked or underappreciated by his brother, that like he was doing everything for him, but he didn't get any respect back. Yeah, he's like less than. Yeah. 
it's not a satisfying ending in the way that you feel like, oh, they finally got the killer because, I mean, she's still dead. He's devastated and a fairly pathetic character. It's kind of an abrupt end to the case. It's, you know, there's no resolution to, you know, Pretty's situation. I mean, arguably it doesn't need, there doesn't need to be, but, you know, it's not like there's another scene where he rides off with Dr. Anna and or they get on a plane and go off to some far-flung country. It's just, that's it. And you kind of feel like the cycle's going to perpetuate he's going to go into his next case and he's going to have more hardship and he's got all these problems that remain he said in the family yeah. unit the family unit's still broken their daughter's still dead there's not any happy ending or real resolution okay yeah, we have an explanation no. and her killer has come to light but it doesn't feel but it's quite downbeat yeah that's certainly downbeat i'd say it's a really successful film and an interesting one because it's like it differs from the norm yeah it is really satisfying to watch it and to contrast and compare with kind of similar entries of the period. Um, and again, you know, framing it against those more somber entries like Who Saw Her Die, Don't Torture Tuckling. I mean, it's certainly not kind of as effective. I, that's not to do it down. It's not as effective on that like emotional level as we've discussed. But I mean, it, it's interesting to see how it sits with those more somber entries. And yeah, I, I don't want to talk about the Vinegar Syndrome set too much because I know people come from the film like out with that but it is, it's interesting like I mean I've not done this personally but if you were a newcomer to the film and you watch like the French sex murders and girl in room 2a I imagine this is quite a contrast yeah a lot more so a lot more serious but yeah more I think it does feel like out of those three films the more kind of classic example of a shallow despite kind of differentiating from it it does mm. have enough concessions to the tenets of the genre yeah, and Valeri is obviously a, a really accomplished filmmaker as well. I mean, this is only his fifth film, but it feels very professional in every aspect of it. it. Certainly does. And I just remembered there, it's just a small thing. But yeah, we see Django, don't we, on the TV? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Throw that in there at the end. <laughs> yeah, nice one, which was obviously made possible because uh, Bolognini produced the film. There you go. Who produced Django as well. Shall I talk a little bit about the production history? Yeah, it's always good to get um, some kind of further information about the background of a film. So once the script had been um, rewritten, Bolognini had set up a co-production with his own BRC film production together with uh, two Spanish production companies, Cinema Matográfica and Tesha. And according to Valeri, the film was shot over the course of seven weeks throughout November, October and November 1971, three weeks in Spain and four and a half in Italy with interiors shot at the Paoli Studios and locations such as the Moroni Villa. Other scenes were shot in Madrid, which obviously proposed a little bit of a challenge because of like number plates, street signs, etc. So scenes like when the teacher thinks she's being followed by a neighbour and the murder was shot in Madrid. It was shot by Manuel Rojas, who was a very experienced Spanish cinematographer who'd shot documentaries since the mid-50s and moved on to feature films in the 60s. And he ended up shooting Hilton again in the previously mentioned Julio de Michele's The Two Faces of Fear around the same time. I think it was must have been just after. I think it's really well shot, great cinematography here, which gives it a fairly high-end look. Yeah, certainly. Some really nice shots. Anything on the production design? Well, just like following on from what you said about scenes being shot in Spain and how that posed a challenge to the production. So the production design kind of had to be altered to reflect this and how, you know, the usage of clever set dressings like Italian posters and cars and Italian styled brick and brat 
The film's finale takes place at Villa Montemario, which coincidentally I mentioned on last month's episode on fashion crimes. So naturally that scene was shot in Italy, as was the post office scene, which was filmed in close proximity to the Rye building. And the memorable opening that takes place at a march was also shot in Italy. And it wasn't an actual marsh, rather a quarry. And the marsh effect was created by filling the quarry with tankers of water. So just from a few of those examples, you get a sense of how these locations were constructed and made to look like the environments that were acquired um, by the film script. Also, it's worth mentioning one of the most memorable interiors of the film. Dr. Anna's home is a predominantly neutral toned at a 70s modernist space punctuated by cobalt blue and crimson reds and you've got these animal print blankets and bed coverings that adorn the home and complement and Marlietola's tawny pattern trousers I mean it's just kind of one of those ones I really love the interior of that film yeah um, so do I yeah and it's really nice to see on blu-ray again you've got that red telephone and the minimalist red faz which creates this you know visual focus and juxtaposes nicely against the blues and whites of the room you see all these like circular motifs present throughout the home and um, from cylindrical light fixtures to artwork mirrors and coat stands and of course the mirror in Anna's home is what triggers in Peretti's mind this realization about the crime which allows him to finally solve it and again I don't want to mention deep red but you know the significance of the mirror as a vital clue you know has also been seen in that countless other chalets as you've you've talked about you know duplicitous nature often kind of reflected um, or signified by the use of mirrors. Um, There's not a whole lot to say about the costuming and interiors, you know, because as we've said, the film kind of grounds itself more in a kind of realistic style. So we've not got these overt kind of jet setter elements. Um, So yeah, we're not seeing this overt stylization via production design. And to be honest, I think that would be at odds with the film thematically. And I think what works incredibly well here is those provincial settings that we see, you know, the rundown shack on the edge of the marsh, the cluttered yeah. art studio where that nefarious activity seems to be taking place and that shed that the digger operator is found hanging in and it all has that sort of dusty, rundown, quite realistic feel. Um, and Anna's stylish apartment is really the only place we see to the contrary. And it's it's tenuous, but it does make me think of spaghetti westerns, you know, it just feels like this like dust filled landscape and like no man's land and you can kind of see that kind of throughout a bit. So yeah, certainly different setting wise. The score, as I mentioned, was composed by Ennio Morricone and directed by Bruno Nicolai. Morricone obviously had a really amazing streak in 71-72. It's one of my personal favourite creative periods for him. Just listen to this. It's Cat and Nine Tales, Elicit in a Woman's Skin, The Fifth Chord, Black Belly of the Tarantula, Cold Eyes of Fear, Short Night of Glass Dolls, My Dear Killer, What Have They Done to Solange, Devil in the Brain, Who Saw a Die, and that's just the jolly. I mean, he managed like classic soundtracks like Verushka and Docu Soccer as well during this time. So pretty good track record for those years. Ridiculous. And like in Cat and Nine Tales and Who Saw a Die films that also featured stories that revolved around children, the score features a lullaby motif, which gives it a fairly melancholic feel and suits the context of the film with it, Stefania who's kidnapped and dies in that bunker. And you can almost like see a scene where the girl is sitting in the bunker singing the lullaby motif. The other cues are more eerie and tense, but not quite the full-on atonal stuff that he did for Argento or Cold Eyes of Fear. So I think it's a really good score. I um, I like it. It's been released on uh, on CD a couple of times. The best edition is probably the the one by Digit Movies. Fetches quite a high price these days, but is available on Spotify as well. That's good to know. Yeah, it's interesting that you said it's that sorrowful kind of motif in the music. Yeah, We talked about 
the themes of childhood and how effective we thought they were and it, it goes to show again the importance of music and how that can bring emotional resonance to a scene or to a film that might not be present in the actual you know uh, visually or thematically or whatever in the dialogue so expertly done so do you have anything to say about the general release of the film yeah i do it's um received its censorship visa on january 29th 1972 and opened the week after on february the 3rd a review in il giorno calls it a well photographed well interpreted film but that that it was a joke that the best actor Salvo Randorno had a supporting role. It goes on to say that it has no sociological ambitions and it does not outline exceptional characters, but it manages to create a very effective suspense. Originally, the film was set to be distributed by Cineritz, but in the end, producer Bolognini went with distributed Jumbo films instead, and My Dear Killer ended up suffering because of that decision. That it made less money than Don't Torture Duckling and Armando Crispino's The Dead or Alive, What Have They Done to Solange, and Sergio Martinez's Torso is perhaps not that surprising, but My Dear Killer was outperformed by even Marighi's French Sex Murders, and only made 250 million lira at the box office and distributor Jumbo folded just a few years after. Unfortunately, My Dear Killer ended up being the only Jalo Valeri made. The director now had two sort of relative commercial failures behind him, and he went back to the genre that he knew best, the Western. A Recent to Live, A Recent to Die, starring Bud Spencer, James Coburn, and Tully Savalas, opened in late 1972. It was a great success, bringing in nearly $2 billion at the box office, but even that amount was dwarfed by his next, perhaps best well-known film, My Name is Nobody, starring Terence Hill and Henry Fonda, which exploded at the box office, making a very impressive 3.6 billion lira when released in 1973. The genesis behind My Name is Nobody was that Sergio Leone had been upset that Enzo Barboni's They Call Me Trinity had outperformed for a few dollars more as the highest grossing Western and set out to make an even more successful film. He got Ernesto Gastaldi to write the scripts and Gastaldi recommended Valeria as the director of My Name is Nobody. The film's great success led to some tension between Valeria and Leone as Leone's involvement sort of increased proportionally to the film's popularity and the two more or less fell out over it. Valeri's next project was a Poliziotesky, and I'm sure you've seen this once or twice, Via Gorilla from 1975, starring Fabio Testi. I'm very familiar with that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I assumed you were, yeah. <laughs> um, which was another success, making 1.8 billion lira at the box office and managed to become one of the best performing Poliziotesky of that year, only beaten by Roma Violenta and Henri Veneux's Jean-Paul Belmondo, starring Peur sur la Ville which was an Italian co-production. Valeri's next film was Sahara Cross from 1977 with Franco Nero. It turned out to be less successful than he had hoped for. And around this time, the Italian film industry started to decline somewhat. And Valeri's association with Leone might have led to him being dismissed as a too expensive option or person that would only take on prestigious projects. He tried to make a few other projects happen, but funding fell through. And in the end, he was relegated to directing commercials and documentary shorts just to make ends meet. In 1986, eight years after Sahara Cross, he returned with the erotic thriller Unscrupulous before making the war film Brothers in Blood, Bull Svensson, which is out on Blu-ray now from Cineploit. The final film he made, Shatra, was not even submitted to the Italian Board of Censors, but it was broadcast on 
Italian television as the Sicilian Connection. And some TV work followed and Valeri stopped directing altogether in the late 1990s, passed away on October 13th, 2016, aged 82 in his hometown, Teramo. No, I just want Vigarello on Blu-ray. I'm quite sad. Yeah, it's only been Japanese DVD, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. More popular than you would think, based on its kind of relative like, low profile, I would say. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed it was that successful. Yeah, I'd never like, looked into how successful it was. I just kind of assumed it was. I just didn't think it would be like that successful. Um, yeah. It just goes to show. So I'll just give some final thoughts on the film before we wind things up. My Dear Killer is a shallow that eschews the stylized nature of the Argento-style thrillers of the period and instead grounds itself in a harrowing tale of childhood abduction and loss. As hallmarks of the shallow are present here, Valeri imbues his film with his own signature style, offering a more serious examination of shallow-like themes lens through a procedural-based slant. Fans of the genre might find the drier pacing of the film at odds with what they would typically expect from a 1972 thriller, but My Dear Killer's effective set pieces and Hilton's excellent and engaging performance as Inspector Peretti balance the film's more sombre aspects. Excellent. I've really enjoyed talking about this. Yeah, I, I didn't really know how this podcast would go, actually. I wasn't sure how the discussion would go. But yeah, no, I've really enjoyed talking about it as well. And it, it just goes to show that talking about films like this sometimes kind of enhances our appreciation. Yeah. We just want to give a shout out to Florenx for a really nice review uh, left on iTunes. I'm going to read it now without any shame because it really made our day. A really interesting podcast on Jallo, probably the best one on the subject. Not only dissecting the plot of unknown gems of the genre, but also explore other topics related to the film, more on the critics and philosophical side. Really helpful to open up perspectives, yet still approachable if you're a new aficionado to Jallo. Thank you so much for leaving that review. It really made our day, didn't it? It was so lovely to read it. And I think like when you sent that over to me, I, I wasn't feeling very well. And I think we knew that we'd have to put this podcast episode back a, a week or so. And it just kind of gave us a bit of a boost when we really needed it. Um, and that's just everything that we like kind of want, want this podcast to be about. So we were really appreciative of your lovely comment. So thank you for taking the time to do that. Yeah, we certainly are. And same thing goes for when people mention us on um, Twitter. So there was a thread like just the other day where somebody had asked about favorite podcasts and Phil Bailey was kind enough to mention us as as being a wonderful podcast. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Right. Next patron episode. Last time, as we said, we talked about some of our favorite set pieces. In the next patron, we'll head back to the Neo Jali and we'll dissect the Onetti Brothers Abracadabra, which was recently given a fantastic release by Cauldron. So look for that later on this month. So for our next patron episode, after we discuss Abracadabra, we thought we would like throw the floor out to our listeners and let you like, you know, you can put on social media, like Twitter, email us or leave a comment on Patreon and, you know, ask us any questions that you want to know the answer to. You know, it could be something you want us to discuss briefly, you know, anything you want to know about um, Shelley, any film in particular, our thoughts on, you know, actors, um, themes, anything you want. It could be something not even related to Shelley. It could be more like, you know more of a wider subject about film or something else so yeah if you just leave us a comment somewhere or send us a message then we will answer that on our next patreon episode 
Yeah, and as always, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Fragments Pod, and you can find our individual accounts on Twitter at Signior Ward and at Rachel underscore Nisbet. And you can email us at fragmentspod at gmail.com. Is that right? That's right. That's what I thought. <laughs> <Just> double check. <laughs> Our theme music that you can hear is the Riz Ortolani composed Seven Bloodstained Orchids theme, which is performed by Osox, and you can find more of their great music at castleosox.com. That wraps it up for this episode, but we'll be back soon to discuss another 1960s giallo. So until then, stay safe. Bye. Thank you. Bye.